between contrast. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray as uh, Raymond prayed earlier that you would grant us humble hearts, that you would enable us to bow before your word. And that we would receive them as they were meant to be understood, as the very words of God, our Creator. Lord, we pray that you would enable me to be faithful to the text, to choose my words carefully, and that you would strike from the minds of those who are here anything that is contrary to Holy Writ. Father, in the end, we pray that through your word, you would make us more like Christ in every way, that we might bring you the greatest glory that is humanly possible in this life and in this world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. What is the root of all sin? I mean, we know why sin is in the world, right? I'm not really saying what is the cause of sin or why is there sin in the world. We know the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. But what is the root of all sin? What causes us to sin in this life and in this world? Why, as Christians, do we continue to struggle with sin in our lives? Because we all struggle with sin, right, with various sins, some with large, glaring sins in our lives for which maybe we're getting counseling for. Many of us struggle with small sins, not insignificant sins. Don't, conf- don't misunderstand me. All sins are significant to God. There are not significant and insignificant sins, but there are greater and lesser sins. That's the language that even Jesus uses. And some of us will struggle our whole lives with these lesser sins that just plague us, that are just a thorn in the flesh that we will pray for over and over and over for deliverance from, and yet to our dying day we'll struggle with certain besetting sins. 
Why is that, and what is the cause of sin? Now, there are various triggers to sin, and that's not what I'm talking about either. <clears throat> you know, sins that we struggle with, there can be these, these triggers that cause us to commit that sin. There are things that happen that trigger that particular sin. And those can be different depending on the type of sin that maybe you are struggling with. But I believe that at the root of every sin, there is a single cause. And that is this. Christians not living for the purpose for which we exist and were redeemed. That is really the cause of every sin. When believers lose sight of why we exist, when we lose sight of why God redeemed us, that leads to sin. As you can imagine, this happens quite often then. Because I am talking about every time we sin. Regardless of what the sin is, regardless of whether we're talking about an evil thought that we entertain, an evil uh, emotion toward a fellow brother or sister in Christ, a harmful word or gossip or sinful actions or activities that we might engage in or losing our patience with someone or losing our temper with our children, whatever sin we are talking about, at that moment when we sin, it is because we have lost sight of why we exist and why God redeemed us. This is what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. As Adam and Eve were mesmerized by a talking serpent, that's an amazing thing to behold, as Adam and Eve were mesmerized by a talking serpent, in that moment, they took their eyes off of their creator and they began to pay attention to the serpent and listen to his lies. And eventually, they turned their focus onto themselves and they started to look at themselves. They took their eyes off of God. They took their eyes off of why they were created. They lost focus at that moment as to why God had placed them on earth in the first place. Why did God create them in the first place? To worship Him, which means to honor Him, to glorify Him. They forgot that for one incredible, damaging moment for all humanity. They lost sight of why they were there, why God had created them in the first place. These lies that are fed to us by the devil, the same lies that were fed to Adam and Eve in the garden, which is that if you will reach out beyond what God has given to you, you can have more. You can do more. If you will not limit yourself to the limits that God has placed upon you, you can accomplish more. 
human beings still buy into that lie. And we sin because we desire to go beyond that which God has prescribed for us as humans, as Christians. We lose sight of why we exist and why God redeemed us. And uh, we see this in every sin, in every person throughout redemptive history. Throughout the Bible, we see this happening time and time again. Abraham telling Sarah to tell a a half lie, maybe not a full lie, but don't tell him you're married to me. Tell him you're my, my sister. At that moment, Abraham isn't thinking about God. He's not thinking about what will glorify God, which would have been to simply trust in the sovereignty of God, right? He's not thinking about God. He's not even thinking about Sarah. He's thinking about himself. His focus becomes on himself, and so he sins. We see that with David committing adultery. He had lost sight of why God had redeemed him. He had lost sight of why God had called him into a covenant relationship with himself to be the king of Israel, to lead his people. And David became focused upon himself. We see that in Solomon taking many wives in clear contradiction to Deuteronomy 17, that the kings of Israel shall not, God commands, shall not acquire many wives for themselves. Solomon just seemed to rip that part of the Bible out of the Pentateuch and throw it away. Doesn't apply to me. We see that with Rehoboam, not listening to the counsel of the older, more wise advisors, but rather listening to the counsel of his friends. He had lost focus on why he exists and why God had placed him into that position to lead and govern God's nation. And he became focused upon himself. Losing sight of why we exist as human beings, first of all, and why God redeemed us as believers is what, for example, causes husbands not to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Shepherding her, protecting her, providing her for her. Because we lose focus on why we're here. Why did God redeem me to bring him Glory. It is the reason wives often do not embrace their God-given role to love and respect their husbands and to care for their children and to focus on the home. It is the reason why men and women become addicted to pornography. Single adults engage in premarital sex. Disunity creeps up within the family and within the church. Because we take our eyes off of the purpose for which God created us and the purpose for which God redeemed us. Like Adam and Eve, we begin to focus more on what the devil is telling us, and then we begin to focus on ourselves. This is really what Paul is getting at in this text. 
that we're going to look at this morning. He's already touched on one thing that the church in Corinth is doing wrong. We saw that in verses 1 to 3. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, that he's knowledgeable, he does not yet know as he ought to know. He doesn't know what he should know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In other words, love trumps knowledge, is what Paul is saying. Not that knowledge is insignificant, because we understand that love that is not driven by accurate biblical knowledge is damaging to the church. But we also know from Paul last week that knowledge that is not shaped and informed by true biblical love is equally damaging to the church. So now Paul is going to address a second thing that the church in Corinth is doing wrong. Before he really gets to the heart of the matter, which is going to be in verses 7 to 13, he's still sort of laying the groundwork. He's laying the foundation, if you will, before he gets to the heart of the matter. And he wants to deal with two preliminary important topics before he gets there. And so he says in verse 4, Therefore... As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. We know that an idol has no real existence. In other words, regardless of what side of the debate the Christians in Corinth are on, Paul reminds them of something that they can agree on. Regardless of whether they're on the side that thinks, yes, we can eat food sacrificed to idols, it's not a big deal, or maybe they're on the other side that is saying, no, we shouldn't, that's horrible, it's a bad thing to do, regardless of what side of the debate they're on, Paul says, look, we can all agree on this, that there really are no gods behind these idols. We know that an idol has no real existence. Now, in saying that, Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying that there is no spiritual or moral relevance to eating food sacrificed to idol. He's going to deal with that later on in chapter 10, for example, verses 19 and 20. He'll say, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what Pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So Paul is not saying that how we engage with idols is irrelevant because there's absolutely nothing to it. He'll say in chapter 10, there is something to it. There's a whole demonic spiritual world that you are engaging with. When you engage with idols or idolatry or whatever the case may be. So Paul is not saying, look, don't, don't worry about the food sacrificed to idols because it's, it's, it's nothing. It, it, it's irrelevant. And we're going to see that as we get into chap, uh, verse 7 down to the end of the chapter 
he's going to point out that there is significance to what they are debating. But nonetheless, he wants to remind them up front that we know that an idol has no real existence. There, there is only one God. All of these idols that supposedly represent some God that is out there is just nonsense because there is only one God. There are no other gods in the world or in the universe. The second thing that Paul does in these opening verses, verses 4 to 6, it is he takes them back to Scripture as a way of teaching them how to deal with conflict in relationships, conflict within the church, because this is what is happening in Corinth. There is serious conflict that is taking place over this, and it is real, and it is serious, and it has the potential to split the church. You know, we Christians in 21st century America, we read passages like this, and also, you know, in chapter 10, well, he'll, he'll deal with it again toward the end of the chapter, and we sort of scratch our heads, like, how big of a deal was this, really, in that day and age? It was a big deal because the issues at that time and in that place were serious. Because on the one hand, you had some in the church who were saying eating food sacrificed to idols sends the message that Christians are okay with participating in pagan practices. That's a bad message to send. We don't want to send that message to our neighbors, which would also send a confusing message to younger believers. What do we say to these younger Christians who get saved, they come into the church, and wait, wait, we're still doing what they do? I mean, we're still practicing the same things that they, well, no, not really, it's sort of modified, but. So there were some in Corinth that said, look, we need to make a clean break. We cannot participate in what they do in any sense, to any level, to any degree, because it sends the message that there is a tacit approval of what they are doing as pagans. Now, having just said that, we can kind of understand the struggle, right? What well, kind of makes sense? We don't want to send the wrong message. Yet, there were some on the other side of that debate who could argue that not eating the food sacrificed to idols is an unnecessary burden placed upon families who are dependent on buying food from the marketplace. In other words, it's easy. It's easy for the Christian who owns, who lives outside of town, who owns his own farm and his own cattle ranch to draw a hard line in the sand and say, we cannot eat the food that is sacrificed to idols on any level because it sends the wrong message. And if you're a true believer, then you ought to agree with me, and this ought to be a strong conviction. But what does the family do that lives within the city, in a little home inside the city wall? And they don't have their own farm. They are dependent on buying food from the marketplace. What do they do? 
This was a serious issue within the church in Corinth. We've, as Christians, have come across debates like this, haven't we? Where both sides have really strong arguments and strong convictions, and we can struggle with, where's the happy medium? Churches across the nation had this not too long ago when COVID was at its highest. There were churches that nearly died because of it. Because you had people on one side saying, look, love your neighbor and require everybody to wear a mask and require everybody to be vaccinated if they're going to come into the church. And if they're not going to do that, then they just don't love people and we're not going to have them in. There were churches who went that far. Then there were those on the other side that said, you just can't believe anything that you're hearing. To want to wear a mask or get vaccinated is a lack of faith and they're just not trusting God and they're afraid to die. Churches were at odds. And then there were some that thought, surely the balance has got to be somewhere in the middle. This is the seriousness of this issue. I just want to paint the picture for you. What do they do about food that has been sacrificed to idols? So what Paul does in dealing with this issue is that he takes them back to Scripture. There is only one God, right? Let's get that straight, church in Corinth. Let's go back to the basics of Scripture. There is only one God. In fact, he'll allude to the Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse 6. But this is a great lesson for us to learn from the Apostle Paul. That when dealing with conflict in relationships, conflict within the church, it is important to go to Scripture. Not to argue from reason. Not to argue from emotion. Not to argue from experience. Not to argue from tradition. Because very often that is how people will make their arguments. This doesn't make sense logically. I'm going to argue from that standpoint. Or this is not what the church has historically done, or this is what the church has always done. Or I just feel that this is right. Experience, right? This just feels right to me. You know, the most common places today, in our day and age, where you see this debate raging within the church, is on the issue on Uh, women filling the office of pastor or elder. And if you've been a part of that discussion or that debate, you know what I mean. People will argue from reason. There are women out there who are incredibly gifted. They are talented. They can exegete the scriptures. People have been blessed by their ministries. I don't doubt that. I really don't. But I also know that God could use Balaam, a pagan sorcerer, to bless Israel. Just because something seems right doesn't mean it is. Or they argue from experience. They go back into church history. And I read a book recently where the author made that argument based on church history, citing multiple occurrences in church history where women all the way back to the 1400s actually 
pastored churches back then and were allowed to be behind the pulpit. But again, just because this is something the church has always done doesn't make it right. That's the argument that the church used against Martin Luther during the Protestant Reformation. Do you mean to say that a thousand years of church history has been wrong and you alone are right, Luther? To which we replied, yes, I am saying that. It doesn't matter what the church has taught for hundreds of years past. Justification by faith plus works as a means of infused righteousness into the believer's soul, thereby making them inherently righteous before God based on their own righteousness, Luther said, is heresy. The church needs to change. Or we argue on tradition. It's always been done this way. Paul reminds him of the biblical truth that he certainly would have taught them when he was with them. From places like Isaiah 45, verse 5, for example. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Pretty clear text, I think. Isaiah 45, 21 says, was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no other. You want to see your... uh, your Mormon neighbor's head spin, take them to these verses. God says there is no other. I am God and there is no other. So how do you explain that? They'll scratch their head. I have no idea. Because this is Scripture. And you can find it in their own Bibles as well. So Paul takes them back to the Word of God and reminds them from Scripture that there is only one God. Paul then has to acknowledge, however, in verses 5 and following, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. What does he mean by that? For although there may be so, what do you mean there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. God. First of all, Paul is not contradicting what he just said in verse 4. When he says, yet for us there is one God, he is not saying, look, okay, so there are many gods that are out there, but for us Christians, we only worship one God, right? For us, there's only one God, even though there may be many gods that are out there. That is not what Paul is saying. Rather, Paul is acknowledging that there are many so-called gods that are out there. This is both true and not true. It is not true in the sense that there is only one God. That is clear from the Old Testament. 
I just read the text to you from Isaiah 45 and 46. Paul understood that. There is only one God, and certainly he would have taught that to the Christians in Corinth. So in one sense, it is not true in that there is only one God, but in another sense, it is true in that a person's God can be anything that that person worships or lives for. So in one sense, it is true that there are many gods out there. Individual people have many gods in their lives. They have multiple gods that they worship, that they live for. Although we may not bow down to statues today, it's the same idea. For many, their god is money or success or sports or material possessions or entertainment or even their own children. Families can sometimes worship in the sense that their whole world revolves around whatever the kids want. I can't tell you how many times I've cringed hearing parents who are looking for a new church or new in the area. What are you looking for in a church? We're looking for one that our kids will be happy with. I can see who runs the family. How about a church that is biblical? How about a church that will teach right theology to you and your children? No, no. We're following them wherever they want to go. Thus, while people worship all sorts of gods, there is only one God. He says in verse 6, Yet for us there is one God. The Father from whom all from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is what Paul is driving at in these three verses. There is one God who created all of us and for whom we exist for his glory. We exist to do that which is pleasing and honoring to God and to our Creator. Scripture tells us that in Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. God says, Call my people from afar, from the ends of the earth, those who are called by my name, whom I created for my glory. All people were created for God's glory. What does that mean to be created for God's glory? What does it mean to be created to give God glory? It means to be created in order to worship Him, to honor Him, to praise Him, to exalt Him, to please Him, to live in obedience to Him. That is how we glorify God. We make the mistake in 21st century evangelicalism of thinking that to glorify God means to sing the right worship songs, right? I glorify God when I, I, I do overtly Christian things, like when I read the Bible, I glorify God. When I pray, I glorify God. When I come to church, I glorify God. But the rest of the time is my time. I just live my life the way I want to live my life. But we exist to glorify God. 
And not just on Sunday mornings do we exist for the glory of God. We always exist to give God glory in all that we do and say and think throughout the week, every moment of every day. Paul, in that wonderful book, Romans, after spending 11 chapters, Paul spends 11 chapters in Romans fleshing out the gospel. That's really what the first 11 chapters of Romans is. It's all fleshing out of the gospel in detail. Explaining justification by faith alone. God's sovereign and amazing grace in election. He gets to the end of chapter 11, and Paul ends with these words. After explaining the glorious and amazing sovereign grace of God in saving sinners, he ends with these words, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. In light of all that God has done for us, Paul says everything that we do and think and say and how we live should be for the glory of God. You know, if Christians, if Christians would live that way, truly, if we would face every day, every moment, thinking to ourselves, my aim is to please and glorify God in every way and in everything that I do and in everything that I say, we would sin far less and there would be far less disunity and conflict among God's people. Yet so often, we don't think that way. So often, for many believers, and I did this myself as a young believer, we get saved, we know that we're saved, we believe the gospel, we've heard the gospel, we do the basics of Christianity, we read the Bible... We go to church, or at least we hope we read the Bible. We go to church, but then I just live my life. I know that I'm saved. I got that. I understand the gospel. I get that. And I'll worship God in church, but the rest of the time, I'm just going to live my life. In other words, what I'm getting at, it, it is the difference between asking two different questions in the Christian life. So often as Christians, we live our lives asking the question, what can I do as a believer? What can I do? If you simply want to be saved, remain saved, and get into heaven, then you can live your life as a Christian asking that question every day. What can I do? What am I allowed to do? But if you want to live your life for the glory of Christ, to the greatest extent possible, then you live your life asking the different question, what should I do? What does God want me to do? What does God require me to do? 
What does God expect of me? You see the difference? What can I do? What should I do? This is what Paul, I believe, is getting at in this text. Paul wants the church in Corinth to remember that they do not exist for themselves. To do what they want, rather they exist for God and for each other. As Christians, we struggle to get that. We do not exist for ourselves. We exist for God and for those around us. For God, meaning to fulfill the purpose for which they were placed on earth and redeemed. And there are various purposes for every human being, depending on where they are spiritually. For example, all human beings share a common purpose, that is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. Right? That's the first question of the Westminster Catechism, I think is right. What is the chief end of man? To know God and to enjoy Him forever. That is why humans were created, to worship God. But for the believer, there is an additional purpose. 1 Peter 2.9 says that God called us to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. For the believer, we have the additional purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. That's why God redeemed us, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, to be the face of Christ to the world. That is our purpose for existing and being redeemed. For husbands and wives, they have their own purpose that is unique to biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. What is interesting, I think, that Paul says almost the same thing in the second half of verse 6 as he does in the first half. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord. So he's talking about the Father. And then he says, Jesus Christ, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It appears that Paul is quoting the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Most theologians think that. For us there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is God. One, Deuteronomy chapter 6. There is one God. Yet now he adds that all things are from the Father and for the Father, and all things came through Jesus Christ, and it is through Christ that we believers have our existence. Forty years later, John would further refine Paul's theological point. Remember, Corinthians is written about the mid-50s. Paul writes the gospel, or John writes the gospel of John about the mid-90s. So 40 years later, John will refine this theological point in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God, talking about Christ. And through Him, through Him, all things were made, and without Him, nothing was made that has been made. So what Paul and John want us to understand is that in Genesis chapter 1, God the Father created all things. It is God the Father who creates. But listen, God the Father creates through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit, all three 
persons of the Trinity are participating in creation. God the Father creates through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that as believers, we have our existence in Christ. That's what he says at the end of verse 6. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We believers have our existence through Christ and in Christ. Paul will talk about this extensively in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He'll go on to say in verse 7, if you skip down to verse 7, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Then in verse 11, in him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 13, in him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed, that is sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. All of the spiritual blessings that we receive from Christ or from God, we receive them because of our union with Christ. Because we are in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we live we move, we receive our blessings, and we exist as believers in Christ. Thus, if we have been created and redeemed, if we as believers have been created and redeemed through Christ and for Christ, and we have our existence in Christ, then everything that we do and say should be for the glory of Christ. This is what Paul has been trying to get the church in Corinth to understand ever since the beginning of this book. If you look at chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 16, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul has been driving home that point from the very beginning. You are not your own. Christians in Corinth, you were created, you were redeemed for the glory of God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You see, much of the problems which exist in Corinth is because the Christians in Corinth were too focused on themselves. And they lost sight of why they exist and why they were redeemed. And Paul is going to tie these two truths together when we get into the next section of chapter 7. Christians exist to serve and to glorify God. We exist to serve, to glorify, to honor God, and we exist to serve one another. That is Paul's point. Let's pray.
our gracious God, Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray that you would help us to take this message to heart. That we would not hear it and intellectually agree with it, but then go out and live our lives as though we've never heard it. Father, we pray that you would enable all of us to live our lives not asking the question, what can I do, but what should I do? What does God want me to do? What does he require of me? That we might live our lives to the greatest extent possible for the glory of Christ. And we pray these things in Christ's name.